At Colorado State University Global Campus, online education isn't another thing we do. It's all we do. Get an interactive education that's built for working adults like you and that employers demand. Explore your options at csuglobal.edu. and welcome to Haunted Nights Live. This is Alistair Cross, and I'm here with my co-host, Tamara Thorne. This is a broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. If you're listening online, please click the follow button. For more information on the show, you can visit Authors on the Air on Facebook, Twitter, and at authorsontheair.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit our websites at tamrathorne.com and alistaircross.com. You can also give our Haunted Nights Live page a like on Facebook or visit our mutual blog at thorncross.wordpress.com. If you tweet, our Twitter handle is at thorncross. We'd like to give a special thanks to W.J. Pierce for creating and performing our music. This is a copyrighted trademark podcast owned solely by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, LLC. Tonight, we are back with the guest that we had last week, but because of studio difficulties, we had to cut it short. So we're crossing our fingers that it'll work this time. So cross your fingers with us. Edward M. Erdelak is the author of eight novels, including The Van Helsing Papers, and most recently, Andersonville. His fiction has appeared in dozens of anthologies and periodicals, including the Stoker Award, winning After Death, World War Cthulhu, Flesh Like Smoke, and Star Wars Insider Magazine. Born in Indiana, educated in Chicago, he lives in Los Angeles area with his wife and bona fide slew of kids and cats. News of his work can be found at his website at www.emerdelac.wordpress.com. Before we introduce him, I'm turning the time over to Tamara, who is going to read an excerpt from Ed's novel, Andersonville. Yes, this excerpt is about prisoners trying to tunnel out of, from underneath this huge wall of Andersonville. The exhausted tunnelers were rotated out to disposal and lookout duty. Enderline went first into the passage with the shovel, then Bill, then Barclay, taking over the relay duty. It was two hours of painful crawling back and forth in the cramped tunnel with buckets of earth. One of the Irishmen, O'Bannon, manned the bellows, and though it did provide a gush of fresh air whenever Barkley neared it to pass the bucket up, he couldn't imagine the meager air Bill and Enderline were getting further down the panel, tunnel, if any. The work was taxing, and the thought of the tons of shifting sand waiting to come down through the crumbling clay ceiling of the passage caused Barkley's heart to hammer in his chest. He kept his breath shallow and quick, but the blood pounded in his ears. They worked mainly in darkness, it being too close and the air too precious to burn away with candlelight. The only sign that there were not in the grave itself was the pinprick of light from the flickering candle O'Bannon kept on the dugout shelf in the vertical shaft that was their umbilical cord to the surface. They did not speak as they worked, but the huffing of their breath let each man know the others still lived. Then, when Barclay felt he couldn't stand the darkness closeness any longer, Bill whispered to him, Enderline figures another couple of feet and he's past the outer wall. Barclay inched laboriously back to O'Bannon and watched the Irishman smile through his feet when he passed him the word. Then there was a strange sound from up ahead and Enderline shrieked once in alarm. It was the sound of rushing water. God, thought Barclay. Had they misjudged their direction and doubled back to the creek? Had they struck some underground spring they hadn't anticipated? O'Bannon erected quickly, and gripping Barclay by the heels, yanked him out of the tunnel into the shaft. They had three ropes made from braided cloth tied around the leg of each man in the tunnel proper. 
O'Bannon grabbed one and began to furiously pull. Barclay sat up and pulled the other. High above, Skinny's face appeared over the hole. What's the matter, he called down in a loudest whisper as he could manage. I don't know, trouble, underground spring maybe, or... At that moment, the water gushed from the tunnel and spread across the floor of the shaft. Except it wasn't water. It was blood. Not some dark mud, as Limber had suggested the night he pulled the red-tipped root from the ground. As before, Barkley could smell the copper tank, feel the consistency as it swept swiftly rose to his ankles. It was blood, and it was filling the tunnel like a giant capillary. My God, O'Banion exclaimed, exclaimed, pausing in his work at the side of the stuff, pulling around his ankles. Keep pulling, goddammit, Barkley yelled over the rushing blood, now threatening their calves. Barkley pulled for all he was worth, and in a few moments he was rewarded as Bill Nixonasa came kicking and splashing out of the tunnel, entirely painted red. So O'Bannon had a hold of Enderline. What happened, Barkley asked, after pulling the spluttering Indian out of the stuff. I don't know, I don't know, said Bill. Enderline was digging, and he stopped and stuck the spade in the ground. It just all started rushing in. There's something in there. What? I felt something claw at me. Here he comes, O'Bannon bellowed triumphantly. The left foot of Enderline broke the surface of the well of blood as O'Bannon dragged it from the tunnel with effort. Enderline's leg was not attached. Instead, a terrifying face breached the surface of the frothing blood. It was thin and skull-like, devoid of hair, but not entirely fleshless, for it had flabby, over-large ears and a bat-like nose that flared and inflated twin bubbles of blood at the first taste of air. Its jaw was clamped down on the ragged end of Enderline's disembodied foot at the ankle, where the torn flesh exposed a piece of crushed bone to which it had affixed its double rows of triangular, serrated, blood-stained teeth. The brow was downturned in the extreme. The red-painted flesh of the forehead wrinkled in astounding, almost mesmerizing patterns amid a blanket of ugly, tumorous growths so large they flapped independently with every movement of the grotesque head. Then, from that scarlet mask, the vertical lids covering its two bulbous eyes slid open. The shaft was filled with blinding yellow light, as if from a theater spot, blazing from the eyes of this horror paddling into the shaft. Don't look in its eyes, Barkley warned, throwing his head back against the well and shielding the glare with his hand. The blood was up to his thighs now. The thing screeched shrilly, dropping Enderling's foot, and swept, leapt up from the tunnel, spreading out impossibly long, thin arms that ended in dramatically curved red talons like the claws of a digging mole. It bore down on O'Bannon and dragged him beneath the surface of the ever-rising pool of blood. Bill screamed and started to climb the shaft, throwing his feet against one wall and his back against the opposite, hopping nimbly up. The pool, the blood covering Bill now drizzled in a red rain down on Barkley, who groped in the pool for O'Bannon, trying to snag hold of his thrashing arms and legs. He gripped the limb and pulled, but found he had gotten hold of the thing's arm. Its hard flesh was scorching to the touch and burned his fingers red before he let go with a yelp. He straightened and looked up. Bill was halfway up the shaft. Suddenly, the sandy wall against which his back was braced collapsed inward. Two sharp, clawed red hands burst out and wrapped themselves around his torso, pulling the Indian in. The blood was up to Barclay's waist, and O'Bannon had stopped fighting. Now the thing surfaced and stood in the shaft, popping its jaws, rending some unidentifiable hunk of O'Bannon to stringy sinew. Behind it, the tunnel opening nearly submerged, expelled a third blood-covered thing into the pit with them. The end. And that is a fine example of how horror can be beautiful. <laughs> oh. mm-hmm. Without Thank further you. ado, please welcome Edward M. Ertelak. Hi, Ed. Hey, everybody. Hey, guys. Hey. Round of nice to have you again. again. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just in case you didn't get enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, so we're let's glad talk to have about. I want to. I want to talk about um, your your description. Um, as I said, you you have a way of describing things that are uh, truly, you know, horrific, but with, you know, really, you know, great beauty. Is that something that you strive to do, or is it just natural? Uh, well, I'm going to say a little bit of both. <laughs> like, uh, I def- <laughs> it's definitely something I work for, because, uh, um, I mean, just with practice and observation, you, you 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 try to find the best words to string something together and make it really kind of flow in a person's mind. Uh, I wouldn't go so far as to call it poetry, but uh, you know it's like that. You're trying to you're making a yeah. picture in somebody's mind, so you might as well paint it with you know colors that are appealing. So yeah, nice. Yeah. Um, let's go back to the very very beginning and let's talk about 
your journey to publication. How did you get started in this? Yeah, uh, well, I, I said I think I was writing uh, as far back as you know childhood. I, my my mother used to give me uh, my mother and my aunts and stuff used to give me Marvel comics when I was a kid, and I couldn't read yet. So, and and reading comics to a kid, if you've ever tried it, like reading all the panels and everything, is a big pain in the butt. So, <laughs> uh, I think to alleviate that from them a little bit, I used to uh, you know make up the stories as I went along and just kind of you know uh, make up what was happening in the panels and everything. But I didn't really start writing. Uh, until probably like in the 2000s because first of all um typewriters kept me away from writing for a long time because uh, I just couldn't deal with all the uh the white out and everything and the machinery of it if you if you I was saying if you've ever seen Greece uh that scene where the uh the uh typist in the principal's office rips all the ribbon yeah. out of it, you know? <laughs> oh, <laughs> and yeah. that was me with a typewriter like I basically was poking it with a spear if I couldn't get it to work I mean it was really bad <laughs> so uh, yeah, that kept me away from writing for a long time. But then, like, around uh, – I, I read uh, – actually, I, two books really got me into writing, and they were a bizarre pair because it was Jack London's Call of the Wild that I heard read to me uh, by a teacher in eighth grade, one of the nuns. I went to Catholic school. And uh, <laughs> okay. and then the other one was uh, the uh, Simon Hawke's novelization of Friday the 13th Part 7. <laughs> So uh, I got that off the shelf because I couldn't go to see rated R movies. So my mom would like let me, my parents would let me get the uh, books. So I'd read the books. And then uh, I didn't expect a book to be so lurid and, and just really arrest me with the violence of it and everything. And I mean, uh, he really just wrote, I mean, you know, I don't know, as far as Friday the 13th novelizations go, he was pretty good, you know. He was very yeah. lurid, Simon, <laughs> Simon Hawk. And I read the whole thing in one sitting, and then right after that I discovered, like, Robert E. Howard and Tolkien and, you know, all the really good uh-huh. stuff, like, right after that. And and that got me filling uh-huh. notebooks up through high school and all that. And mm-hmm. and that's when I kind of decided I want to do that. So I, I got into uh, – I went to college for screenwriting and moved out to Los Angeles to do that and everything and didn't really have a lot of luck with it. It's very hard to get stuff read. And oh, yeah. I found with fiction writing, you know, I had an audience waiting at the end of everything I finished, so it was a lot more appealing to me. And and now it seems kind of like uh, the film industry has come around to wanting uh, established IPs, you know, intellectual properties to adapt and everything <laughs> rather than getting a lot of they, – they don't put a lot of truck in original scripts anymore which is sad, yeah. but uh, good yeah. for me, hopefully. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm kind of going the long <laughs> way around the barn back to where I started. I guess. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but then uh, wow. so the first thing I had published was like in 2009 about that. So I've really only been having professional work done for about last, what is that? I'm, math is not my thing. But, yeah, about <laughs> a few years. Since 2009, <laughs> about that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you were up for writing your own screenplays. Yes, actually, book. yeah, wow. I started taking some of my screenplays. I had 12 screenplays that nobody's ever read. So, like, uh, I mean, uh-huh. I won a couple contests with them and stuff like that, but I just never got any representation from them or anything like that. So yeah, um, I'm like the George W. Bush of California, like, you know, the joke about how he lived in Texas and couldn't strike oil. I live in California, I can't tell a script. So, wow. so like, uh, yeah, so I, I came around to, to fiction writing. I had my first book uh, published through uh, a small press. It was Mercaba Writer, um, uh, this uh-huh. weird Western series. And uh, that went, I went four books in. I just had one really good year, really, because I had been writing and submitting to, like, you know, all kinds of venues and not getting anything. And then one year, just everything hit at the same time. So, uh, yeah, nice. I don't know, perseverance, wow. perseverance, for sure. Yep, yep, nice. Yeah. I, yeah, we don't hear each other right on time. That's why we talk about yeah, that. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, tell us a little about the writers of Merkabah. That That's a really interesting take on Western. Okay. Yeah, that was uh, – I. my wife um, had a book on angelology or something. She picked up, you know, in a dollar bin or something. And I was mm-hmm. reading through it, and I found uh, this term Merkabah writer in there. And it was basically a, a sect of Hasidic mystics that would uh, uh, use, like – ecstasy basically not ecstasy the drug but you know like ecstasy like going to an ecstatic state (laughs) and sort of uh use chanting and stuff like that and um um, leave their bodies and astrally project themselves up through the reaches of uh heaven there were like seven levels to heaven and they would you know the heckalots they're called Uh 
and uh, they would explore yeah. the upper reaches of heaven, basically. And the, and the you know the uh, the ultimate goal was to stand in the presence of God Himself or whatever. So uh, I got this picture just jumped into my mind of um, a guy, a Hasidic mystic. I lived in a Hasidic neighborhood too, so I'd see you know people walking back and forth to Sabbath and everything, and um, the black hat and the and the coat and everything was very kind of westerny already. <laughs> And then I just kind of pictured this guy on a flaming horse, like a horse made out of fire and everything, and like in uh, uh-huh. Elijah, I think, that goes on the flaming chariot and all that. Uh-huh. And it just kind of went from there. I was a big, I said I was a big Robert E. Howard fan, and I read a lot of Solomon Kane and his old weird Western stuff, like uh, uh-huh. The Thunder Rider, old Garfield's Heart, stuff like that. And I just oh, really fine. liked weird Westerns, but and wanted to always write something in that, but couldn't really find a character. That was interesting yeah. to me, and then that just started. You know, when when you when you strike on something that works, you just start making all these connections, and it just really starts flowing out of you and everything. And I started reading more on Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism and folklore, uh-huh. and and they have this whole uh, concept of the Ein Sof, which is this. Uh, it's like uh, you're forbidden. Scholars are forbidden to uh, from uh, uh, investigating the nature of God before creation and all this. And it's very kind of Cthulhu-y. <laughs> so, uh, oh, it's just, cool. it just kind of, uh, and there, and there are mentions of like creatures that swam in primordial chaos before creation that God had to subdue and all this in creation. And uh-huh. it's really interesting stuff. And, uh, it just kind of all flowed together into this like set of, uh, novellas that I get, then I then tied into four books and yeah, it was a four book series. Uh, Tales of a High Plains Drifter, P-L-A-N-E-S, was the first one. So. <laughs> nice. Oh, that's never. There's nothing better so. than a bad pun. Yeah, well, Mint with No Name was the second, so I got a lot of eye rolls from that one. But, uh, it's a fun series, though, yeah, and it's it's not, it's, it sounds kind of jokey, like the concept is a little bit absurd, but I try to play everything really straight, and it, though it has a pulpy origin, it's very, uh, yeah, I, don't, I don't know, I'm pretty proud of the work. So. Pulp is great. You sound yeah. like you really have a lot of fun. Oh with yeah, what you to write. I've I've got to be. That's part of it. That uh, I think for a reader to enjoy it, the writer has to enjoy it too, for sure. I think the love has yeah. to come through. I think so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I totally agree. Um, let's talk about your 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 very first book. What what was it called, and uh, how has your writing changed since then? Uh. uh... Well, let's see. The first novella, the thing I ever first I ever had published was a novella called uh, Dubaku, that was about. It was actually published the same time as the first Merkaba writer book, and um, it was basically about a. Uh, it was about a slave ship in 1760, I think, or something like that, and basically this uh, shaman from the interior of Africa, like uh, a waziri, actually he was, which is like a kind of not so subtle reference to uh, like. Edgar Rice Burroughs had these Waziri tribesmen or whatever in his in his work, and uh, basically his wife gets kidnapped by his brother-in-law who doesn't uh, approve of their marriage or something, and he sells her to the slaver. And this guy, being like having no concept of you know what slavery was and everything, basically goes and finds the first English slaver he can and volunteers to go aboard to try to find wherever she's gone. And so while he's on there, he. Uh, uh, he kind of enacts a dark ritual to kind of take revenge on these guys as he sees the abuse they're, you know, heaping down upon the people around him and stuff. And it's very, it's very pulpy and, uh, uh, it, it's right back to Howard. I said Howard was a big influence and probably, uh, Lovecraft yeah. and all that stuff. And, um, I think, uh, I don't know that I've totally moved away from that stuff since, but, um, I think, uh, it's very episodic. The, the, that and the first Merkaba writer book are really kind of episodic in 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 the way they're created. Like uh, I would kind of take a picture in my mind of something I wanted to depict and kind of build a story around it. And um, I didn't really start with the character as much. And now I think I'm more I'm more I'm more like for Andersonville when I started that. What really got me into the concept was the main character. Like I wanted to start with mm-hmm. a really cool concept and then just a really conflicted character. I like, you know, I like characters that aren't, uh, aren't quite as, uh, apt, you know, <laughs> or they have yeah. something yeah. they're struggling with before they even get to the main conflict and everything, you know? So right. I think, uh, yeah. I think, I guess I've matured more, I guess, as a writer. Yeah. Because yeah, I've matured more. I've started, um, I'm not totally away from my pulp origins, but, uh, 
I'm definitely like uh, more into the person at the at the center uh-huh. of the story than I think I was. Yeah, that's a really good combination. Yeah, I mean because the pulp pulp stuff is exciting. It's really exciting. I Mm -hmm. mean, and uh, I love that four color kind of stuff. Uh, Not necessarily where good and evil is is where good and evil is like you know cut and dry. Mm -hmm. But if you take that um, that kind of lurid stuff and marry it to like a more adult sensibility, I think it's it's Mm -hmm. like the potential is really boundless. I love it. Wow. So Anderson though. I originally was attracted to you because I'm a big fan of the old classic Andersonville. And yeah. when I started reading your novel, Andersonville, it was um, absolutely fantastic. You had done the same heavy research that Macaulay Cantor had done for his bookstop <laughs> of a book. Yeah. And, but you took reality and turned it just a little bit on its ear. How did you decide to do that? Why did you choose Andersonville? Uh, actually, this is a weird. This was a weird one for me because Andersonville kind of chose me in a weird way because uh, um, the guys that came to me over at Delray uh, at Random House were uh, Frank Parisi and Chris Cravat, and there was a couple of editors over there. And uh, I had done work for Star Wars Insider and their website, the Lucasfilm website, back in the day, just some fiction and stuff. And and one of the editors there, Pablo Hidalgo, just knew these guys at Del Rey, and uh, they were looking for somebody to do a historical, like, horror kind of thing. And uh, he suggested me, which was pretty nice of him, you know. So uh, they came to me with the concept. Basically, the concept was just that uh, there was a dark ritual happening at Andersonville, and somebody had to get in and stop it. And they just were like, uh, you know, we know we want these historical characters to feature because they're so odd and everything, like... Uh, Henry Wirtz, the commandant, and uh, Boston Corbett yeah. was another one they wanted in there because he had a real he has a real Lovecraftian feel. He's a weird guy. I mean, he's almost like uh, that that sailor that goes around Innsmouth, you know, talking all this weird stuff <laughs> and everything. And uh, but he's an actual guy. He was the he was the man that uh, uh, eventually killed uh, John Wilkes Booth. He like after the war, oh. you know, he killed John Wilkes Booth. Uh, when they went to arrest wow. him and stuff, and um, but he was also this uh, diehard Christian, uh, a fanatic basically. Like he, uh, um, he had this problem with he had a proclivity for prostitutes, and uh, he <laughs> would pray very fervently, you know, for this to end and everything. And finally, he saw in a vision that the way to stop it was to basically emasculate himself, and he did. And then, like by himself, and then went to a tent revival, and nobody even knew it until he started bleeding out in the middle of his tent revival. So, oh, really, a weird guy, a really weird guy. But uh, so, so he had roll it at. Uh, yeah. What was his role in Andersonville? I don't recall. In Andersonville, he was the guy that Barclay found in the middle, like the preacher guy that was in the middle of the uh, in the middle of the creek. And uh, oh, okay. Yeah, that guy. And he yeah. really did. He did like go on a stump and preach in Andersonville and stuff, according to the research yeah. and everything. And um, so all that stuff happened before he even got to Andersonville, you know. So the, wow. it was just a really weird group of characters already kind of moving through uh, the actual mm-hmm. prison. And uh, they said, can you incorporate this kind of stuff? And, and and they had come to me, I guess, on the strength of Merkaba Rider and everything, which a couple of them had read. And uh, they, you know, Doc Holliday shows up in that and mysterious Dave Mather and a couple of other, <laughs> like, historical characters. And yeah. so they saw that I could kind of weave that in. And they said, uh, you know, what do you think you could do with this? And I started bouncing some ideas off of them. And, uh, and the main thing that got me interested in it was uh, – I get I, again Barkley, the, the main character, coming up with the main character, and uh, I wasn't sure if you know a big publisher would let me do like an African American character who was also a Southerner and actually had some ties to the aristocracy in the South uh, because he's uh-huh. from New Orleans and all this, and you know I wasn't sure how that would go over, and and Frank and Chris were like excited by it, and uh, so that was how it came about. Yeah, they, I was like, yeah, I'll do it once they were okay with that. So, wow. Oh. Now, you said I have to go back because there's something I'm interested in. You said you went to Catholic school. Yeah. I'm yeah. I'm oh, yeah. curious about I'm curious about how uh that affected you and uh mm-hmm. yeah, like did, did does that play into anything that you write currently? Oh yeah, most definitely. Uh, like when I was a kid, uh I, when I was a kid I wanted to be a priest. I mean, I would like go to I would go to church when I was like 
five or six years old on Sundays, and I'd bring every stuffed oh, wow. animal I had and line them up on the communion <laughs> rail and all this, like praying. I mean, it's ridiculous. But, uh, but, uh, I and I was it. an altar boy. I mean, the whole schmeal. And I just really liked the ritual of it. It's very esoteric, uh, you know, when you go in there. And yeah. and uh, and reading up on all the names in the Bible, like like for when you're a Catholic, the the Bible is read to you a lot, you know, and you don't really read it yourself that much. But it was like all these names would show up and uh, – you know, the 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 crazier the name, the more I wanted to learn about the, you know who the person was or who the being was behind it and stuff. And and uh, so I just loved all that esoteric stuff and looking it up and everything. And it definitely it definitely came out in in Merkaba Writer, and uh, and this like uh, the 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 stuff the the demonology stuff in Andersonville. A lot of it was uh, the the antagonist was leftover was a leftover character from Merkaba Writer that was like in my notes and I just couldn't find a place for him. And uh, yeah. he fit perfectly into Andersonville. You know this Mastama character, yeah. which is like you know this this thing this thing that in Jewish folklore was the named being that like opposed Moses. You know, in uh, trying to free oh. the Israelites and everything. And and I just oh, love wow. that kind of stuff. I love those weird little nuggets. You know that you got to look oh. deep to find and everything. And you know, I just love so that when kind did of stuff. You, That's when did you from being decide, When did you decide against becoming a priest? <laughs> Uh, geez, I think probably the same time I discovered girls, <laughs> probably around like, you know, seventh or eighth grade. Yeah, I'm sure yeah. I was out of it by wow. then. It, it was a give and take. And, you know, who knows, maybe in the, maybe in the future, you know, if I outlive my wife, I'll go back to it, but <laughs> probably not now. Probably not now. Nice. Uh, well, and, and jumping back to Andersonville, Henry Wurz, now he was... It, I guess you'd call him the commandant of Andersonville. Yeah, and yeah he was actually the not the official district. commandant. He was just like the – there was like a commander of the interior prison, and then there was the commandant of the entire uh-huh. prison who was like a general named Winder. But Hurt Wurtz gets yeah. all the flack for everything that happened at Andersonville. And it might not actually – yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was a pretty – he was a pretty – it depends on what you read. Like I, I, in my book, obviously, he's a horrific person, but uh, – mm-hmm. You know, there are some accounts of him being, uh, you know, the South was very, uh, very strung out. I mean, during the Civil War, they were, they had very few resources to divert to a conflict and they were putting them all on their soldiers and they didn't have a lot to, uh, uh-huh. re, you know, keep for prisoners. And uh, yeah. so there, it was just a night, the whole place was a nightmare. I mean, and then there were guys that were grifting, you know, Winder might've been one of them, the general, because he had a history of mm-hmm. it actually in Richmond or something like taking money off the top. <laughs> And and diverting yeah. supplies, you know, and selling them and stuff, and so yeah, it was a mm-hmm. horrific, horrific place. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. Anderson itself was really just. It makes sense that you would add monsters to it because it was truly. It monstrous. kind of makes it a little bit more palpable. <laughs> palpable, I guess. Palatable. <laughs> yeah. If you, uh, palatable. If you think of it, Both. if you can attribute it to demons, yeah, instead of like people, but. Yeah, I mean, the actual stuff Truly, is, yeah. is the most horrific. The the trueness of it is the most horrific part, I think. Yeah, it's it's not something you can show on TV because you can't get the people skinny enough. Yeah, yeah. yeah. right. <laughs> Everybody's going to look like the machinist, you know, <laughs> Christian Bale or something. And yeah. Oh, I know. It's, yeah. Robin <laughs> and he, he would have been fairly fat in Andersonville. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the yeah. That's crazy. Um, Did you, you find you anything when you were... One. Oh, I'm sorry. When you when you were researching, did you find anything uh, in particular? I mean, obviously the whole thing is kind of disturbing. But was there uh, anything in particular that really stands out to you as being, you know, particularly, you know, hard to take? Uh, one thing for me was the creek. I mean, it was their their only source of water was this one uh, creek that passed through the, co- the the camp and bisected it and everything. And uh, upriver of this creek, there was a bakehouse that the Confederates used, and they would just throw all their offal uh, and garbage and, you know, empty, like, latrines and stuff in the upriver of the creek. So by the time it got down to the prisoners, it was already, like, you know, undrinkable, basically. Uh, yeah. And uh, yeah. that was the one source of water. And it took them a while to figure out why this place was so pestilential, you know, and people were just getting uh. sick just being around the creek and everything. And that was pretty horrific. And uh yeah. Then yeah. there was there was this uh, there there were these guys the raiders that were uh, Union prisoners that were robbing their own like other Union prisoners uh, just oh, to yeah. stay stronger and everything yeah and they were like uh, looting them as they came in and you know getting gold watches off the new guys and whatever they had and and dealing with the uh, Confederate guards on the sly and uh, when one of them was caught um, 
this guy got hung like twice, and it was a really it was really horrific. It's in the book too, but um, I mean, they, they, the rope broke. Like they tried, they had a they had a trial when they caught a couple of these guys finally, and they and they actually hung them inside the prison. They built a, like a a scaffold and everything, and this one guy was. The rope broke on him, but they hung him again anyway, and it was oh, I can't imagine that. Oh I mean, God! Yeah. Oh. oh boy. Yeah. Now you have a new book, a collection of novellas called The Sword and Pistol. Yeah, with Sword Tell and Pistol. About, that's from Tell that's us from about Ragnarok. That. Uh, that's four novellas that have Ooh. been either they've been out before. Uh, some of them were really hard to get. One was through a like Lyrical Press, and it was in. Uh, it was only an ebook, so you know a lot of people would would uh, write me and say, "How can I get this book?" And you know, once I the contract expired, it was just you couldn't get it anywhere. You know, I, I had it on my computer. Uh-huh. That was it. <laughs> wow. So, uh, um, and another one was put out in just collections that weren't really or anthologies that didn't get a lot of uh, play or anything. So I just decided to bundle them all together, and um, they have kind of a recurring theme of just outlaws. You know, guys that uh, uh-huh. are working on the fringe of society and everything. The first one, Red Sails, is about. Uh, uh, it's like about these two British, uh, well, a British Marine and a uh, Dominican Blackfriar, who get uh, uh-huh. their sunk, their ship gets sunk by this pirate crew, and the pirates are all. And there's got to be a supernatural element to all these, so the pirates are all yeah. werewolves, and the uh, the captain <laughs> is a vampire, and to kind of placate the crew every full moon, he puts to this cannibal island and lets them all uh, hunt somebody down, you know, at, at midnight or something. So these two guys are like mm-hmm. running on an Island, getting hunted down by werewolves. And that's the oh. first one. And, uh, <laughs> uh, it's like a survival horror. And then the other one, night of the Jikiniki was, uh, uh, I'm a big fan of Chanbara movies and, and Kurosawa and Takashi, uh, Miike, uh-huh. Miike and all that stuff, you know, samurai movies. And, uh, ah. so, um, this one's set in feudal Japan, and it's basically like Night of the Living Dead if it happened in a feudal Japanese prison, with these like <laughs> three guys trying to get out, like two prisoners and a and a decapitator. <laughs> they they used to have like guys that were sword testers that didn't actually uh-huh. kill anybody. They just tested the swords on bodies, you know, of prisoners uh-huh. and stuff. So this guy's trying <laughs> to get out with these prisoners, and it's pretty oh, horrific. Geez. Uh, wow. geez, yeah, that's only two. Okay, the third one. <laughs> The third one actually is pretty light, kind of fantasy. I'm a Ray Harryhausen fan too. Uh, Clash of the Titans uh-huh. and oh. Sinbad and all that. Nice. So I did this uh, this story called Sinbad of the Sword of Solomon. Um, so that's like a high Arabian fantasy kind of deal with uh-huh. uh, this guy, you know, Sinbad and his crew trying to get this magic sword off an island. And then the last one is really out there compared to the other collection because it's about uh, a South Houston gangbanger who goes to Chicago basically to escape a murder rap and winds up uh, with this group of kind of like supernaturally powerful like gangsters and he kind of mm-hmm. finds the secret of their of their power and it's really horrible you know I'll spare you the details you have to read it but, <laughs> uh, that was called Belly God so yeah so and yeah that's you write a lot of yeah, tell I, us about your Cthulhu stories I get um I do a lot of Lovecraft. I didn't read. I, Lovecraft was not my first choice, and everything. Uh, they, there's a thing. A really Howard Munson was my guy, you know, Robert E. Howard. But he wrote a uh-huh. lot of uh, Cthulhu. He was he was pen pals with Lovecraft, so he wrote a lot of Cthulhu kind of stuff. And uh, there's a difference between Lovecraftian heroes and How Howardian heroes in that they. Uh, there's a cool line in one of the Conan books about where he encounters this horrific, you know, in Lovecraft, you encounter this horrific demon thing and you automatically, your mind snaps and you just become a ball of jelly, yeah. you know, basically. But in Conan, <laughs> it's like he's not civilized, so he doesn't, uh, and he's kind of superstitious, <laughs> so he's able to accept this stuff and then still fight it and everything. And so I kind of come from that school a little bit. Uh-huh. Uh, I got into love. I got into writing Lovecraft uh, through Chaosium. Brian Salmon's uh, one of the uh, editors at, uh, that does the anthologies for Chaosium started publishing a lot of my stuff mm-hmm. and uh and uh yeah i just whenever he puts out a call i'm i'm very interested in the stuff he does he likes i like to do historical horror and he has a whole line of books that are just like lovecraft uh in a certain era you know he did one that was uh-huh. uh lovecraft in the 50s called atomic age cthulhu and i did that he's got one coming out called uh summer of lovecraft <laughs> in the 60s that i did one for and <laughs> And uh, kind of with like a with a Kent State riot on Miskatonic University, so I mean it's pretty fun kind of stuff. Like I like writing that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. 
finding a way to insinuate that stuff into history is pretty cool. I did one about the blues, uh, blues singers. You know, the, the old uh, Robert Johnson, uh, make a deal with the devil at the crossroads. But uh, I yeah. used Nyarlathotep or something, you know. So it was called <laughs> Crawling Chaos Blues. And yeah, it was pretty fun. It's, I like writing that kind of stuff. It's, it's pretty fun. Yeah. Oh, how fun. So where do you think and, that your original interest in horror comes from? Uh, I was terrified of horror as a kid. Like I, I think um, as a kid, I used to have. I lived in Chicago, and we had uh, on WFLD, I think it was, we had uh, this horror host called Sonus Fenguli, and he would show all these like old Hammer and Amicus and uh, you know Godzilla oh, yeah. movies and stuff like that, and Universal horror movies. And I remember being all hyped up about the. Uh, a creature from the Black Lagoon in 3D, you know? You had to go to 7-Eleven and get the glasses to watch it and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so I was into that old, schlocky kind of stuff. And then, like, uh, I remember clearly uh, waltzing into the living room and my dad had all the lights out and he was watching The Exorcist on TV. And it was right yeah. at that moment when uh, Regan's head turns around. And yeah. so I'm oh. looking at, this, at the TV, that happens. I look at my dad and he looks at me and kind of just you know, raises his eyebrows and he's only got the light of the TV screen on him. And I just shrieked and ran out of there and like went under the, went under the table. And so I didn't watch horror for a lot of years after that. Yeah. That must've been super hard for a kid who uh, wanted to be a priest. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah exactly. Yeah. Cause that stuff was real to me when I was a kid, you know, so like at uh, six, I was like, my God, I was, you know, at night going, please don't let that happen to me. You know? And, yeah. We were actually talking so, about uh, that just the other day. We were talking about, uh, mm-hmm movies that we kind of grew up on that shaped us and stuff and of course the exorcist came up and you know i never i didn't even see that until i was almost 30 and it yeah me too i was terrified (laughs) (laughs) they re-released it in the theater and i went with my wife at the time and uh, you know it was with the special edition with the with the with the spider walk or the crab walk or whatever spider walk oh my god horrible and the music just started and i looked at her and i was like i'm terrified out of my mind right now you know i feel like i'm in in the execution chamber or something about to get gassed i mean oh it's a horrible one but it's good but i can only watch it like once every six years or something the only reason i watch that spider walk that is so disturbing is at the end when she spews out the tomato soup blood oh yeah it takes all the fear away yeah, yeah, and that was, like, digitally added it. or something, too. I think they digitally added that. Yeah, and, uh, yeah that was a bad choice. No, yeah. Now, it, it was, was still scary, though. For me. <laughs> <laughs> the worst scene for me was simply where the leg gets gashed when she's floating. That I still can't watch. Oh, when the, all when the, the wounds are just kind of opening. Yeah. yeah, that's pretty yeah, horrible. Yeah, just that yeah. one wound on the leg. Now, what's yours, and what's yours, too, Alistair? Oh jeez! For, well, for me, it was that first scene I saw. And the worst part of it was when the head, you know, when the head turned around and the dresser was moving and all that kind of stuff. The worst part of it for me as a kid was it was happening in broad daylight. You know, like that stuff was no. only supposed to be confined to night. And you know, like yeah. God didn't let that happen during the day. And then there right, was, right. I was like, oh God, exactly. no, there's no, there was no safety in the daylight like in a vampire movie or something. Yeah, exactly. Oh. That was yours, Alistair. What my most disturbing? Yeah, in the in the Exorcist. In the Exorcist, yeah. Oh yeah, it would yeah. be that would be the crab walk down the stairs. I seriously yeah. can't handle it. Like I don't, I didn't even notice. I'm so mortified. I'm so horrified by the by the whole thing. I don't even notice like the fake looking blood. I just <laughs> that happens, and I I remember when I you know when I first saw it, I kept playing it over and over and over because it kept it just messed with my mind, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it kind of like, comes out of nowhere. She's on the phone downstairs, and then all of a sudden, uh-huh. downstairs, it's like, oh. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's and in the, if you've ever read the book, like, I thought, okay, oh, before I, I yeah. yeah, before I watched the movie, I was like, oh, I'll read the book, and that'll take some of the edge I off it. Too. Terrified yeah. of the book, because that yeah. scene is described where she's on the phone, and all of a sudden, she just hears, she feels this, like, wetness on the back of her ankles, and she turns around, and it's her daughter's head, like, Bent yeah. all the way back down and licking the back of her feet, and it's like, oh. yeah, I know, right? I had to put the three oh, yeah, on and watch it at like three in the morning. Oh, like, I, yeah, I somehow thought that uh, the book would be tamer too, and and seriously, like after reading the book, that's when I really, really understood, you know, why people were, you know, especially the Catholic Church, you know, so up in arms about it. It's just uh, brutal. Yeah, it's pretty yeah. brutal. Yeah. Yeah, I actually read it beforehand too, and I saw it in the theater when it was new because I'm old. And we we went to the drive-in and and the set for the rear. We were dating at the time, 
is, you know, back in the last century. And uh, <laughs> there really were people throwing up out their, their car doors. I saw oh, a woman geez. with a big thing wow. of Kentucky Fried Chicken lose it. But I had I read the book, the whole thing, in like two days. So I uh-huh. sort of knew when not to look. And I don't know how much how many, how much I actually saw that first time. I remember Poltergeist better because I thought it was over, and then the, the thing started popping out of the pool, and yeah, I ended yeah, up in my date's lap, and I married him, fortunately. <laughs> so. <laughs> so you could so tell, you've still done, tell the story easily. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you've done a lot of research on, on demonology and stuff like that, correct? Yeah. Uh, yeah, as as re, you know, as required. Yeah, I do. Yeah, that's interesting. See, the the project I'm working on now is going to require a little bit of that, so I might be hitting you up. It's interesting yeah. stuff, though. It's, yeah, yeah, I got a little really bit of a library, so sure. Yeah, good, good. This is good. This is good to know. <laughs> this is good to know. No, but yeah, it's. Uh, what would you say then now, as an adult, what scares you more than anything? For me, mm-hmm. as an adult now, uh, like as. Growing up and not having any attachments and everything, I wasn't I wasn't afraid of like anything. But now for me, it's uh, just straight up death. Oblivion terrifies me. Like I can imagine a lot of like in my books, I can imagine a lot of horrible things, but I cannot imagine uh-huh. nothingness. You know, just non-existence. I think is what terrifies me. Yeah, no, uh, there's a scene in yeah. there's a scene in in one of the Macabre writers where uh, one of the things about uh, hell in Macabre, in the Macabre writer universe, hell is like whatever you make of it, you know, whatever you can conceive of, that's your hell when you go there. And it's like, uh-huh. uh, for these guys, uh, who don't believe in anything, um, you know, the devil pulls back a curtain and they're just all floating around in this black nothingness, you know, and they're bumping it. They're, they're just stiff bodies bumping into each other and they don't even perceive each other, you know, and, wow. and that kind of thing. That's, that was like my greatest fear, you know, just, just being in a box and, uh. and not being able to do anything. It's terrific to me. Uh, Existential horror, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean if there's if there's any kind of if there's any kind of consciousness, I I would agree, but you know, yeah. a lot of but the idea of being just not there anymore, like no consciousness. Yeah. I I I hope that's not the case. I, I you know, but yeah. it doesn't really bother me. You know, uh, like if I, I, guess I if the argument like is <laughs> Yeah, the yeah. argument is like, you know, if you can't conceive of how you how it was before you were born, then there's nothing to fear about, you know, after you're gone. But Yeah. I don't know. Just yeah. with all my kid with my kids now and everything and it just it terrifies me. That's that's the one thing yeah. that still scares yeah. me. That would make a difference for sense. sure. Yeah. I don't know. All those torturing by de- tortures by demons. We're 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 binging on uh supernatural again. That's the next season of starting yeah. soon. All that demon torture. Oh dear God, that's the torture. I couldn't deal with that. Just like physical torture. Yeah, that's pretty horrible. Yeah. Like, I'm probably yeah. afraid of a lot of things, but you know, you ask for the worst. So. Yeah, that's pretty bad. Hey, speaking of death, tell us about the Van Helsing papers too. That sounds really interesting. Yes. Okay, yeah, the Van Helsing papers uh, um, are is a pistol. It's an epistolary novel. I conceive it as a series. I haven't. I've mapped the series out, but I haven't written the other ones yet. So the first book, mm-hmm. Tarovalas or Van Helsing in Texas, from Journal Stone, is uh, basically about. Uh, it takes place like right after Dracula left off, and it's all in journal form of Van Helsing's journals and stuff, just like the original oh, Dracula. Fine. So. Uh, uh-huh. He suffers a mental breakdown after stemming from his dealing with the brides. You know, he, he in the original book, he's the one that dispatches Dracula's brides and everything. So he kind of has PTSD and uh, all these weird fixations with, uh, with uh, you know, Mina and all this now. So he kind of checks himself into John Seward's asylum and uh, Jack Seward's asylum and Jack Seward... Uh, you know, treats him for like six months or something. And then when he comes out, he decides to take a holiday and, and take uh, the worldly effects of Quincy Morris, the uh, the American that died fighting Dracula, the cowboy, oh, uh, uh-huh. back to the Morris family ranch in Texas. And uh, so he brings all this stuff back, and then weird things start happening. And, uh, you know, he's kind of doubting his own sanity. You know, he's like, is this really happening, or is it just his own delusions returning? So he kind of has to decide, you know, before everything goes to hell. There's a lot of, like... Uh-huh. It starts with like cattle slaughtering and and, and uh, you know all these horrific murders start happening and he starts detecting this preternatural thing because that's his whole you know that's his whole <laughs> his whole I got, I don't have the word that's his whole you know that's his thing, thing. thing. there you go thing, yeah <laughs> that'll work I'm a writer yeah thing <laughs> that's his uh, thing 
<laughs> yeah, so then it's just him uh, having to deal with his own, you know, thing. So that's how the first one is. And it's I said it's all epistolary uh, letters and, and mm-hmm. you know, like a found document. I actually, um, if you've ever read uh, uh, Nicholas Meyer's Sherlock Holmes books. Or, oh, uh, I love them. Oh, yeah, or, jo- or George McDonald Frazier did the... Uh, uh, Oh, what's that guy's name? That character that goes throughout history and is a total bastard. Uh, Flashman. He does these Flashman books, and it's kind of like oh, it's yeah. not alternate history, but it's like hidden history, you know. So like, uh, it's like that with with Van Helsing, basically. Okay. Oh, nice. Good. So did you read? Did you? You must have read the the original Dracula and just oh, yeah, wanted to yeah. add to it. Is that what, how that happened? Well, for me, um, uh, and again, maybe this goes back to me being Catholic and everything, but uh, the the character of Van Helsing is my favorite character in in Dracula and everything. I just I love the idea of a yeah. scholar who studies up on obscure stuff that nobody knows about, and you know can kind of come forward and say, well, it's obviously this, you know, because you right. know, he has a silver <laughs> ring on his left yeah. finger, and that means blah blah blah. You know, I just like that kind of um, <laughs> fighting scholar kind of stuff, and. And uh, I found the oh, yeah. character really interesting. He's not really, I don't see him as a vampire hunter. Like in a lot of the depictions, like they have a Hugh Jackman movie where he's just a vampire hunter and a monster hunter. But I think he's more like this scientist who, that's how I have depict him anyway, is he's this scientist who just happens to, uh, you know, run into all this bizarre, obscure stuff and is just kind of like yeah. a yeah. jack of all trades when it comes to, he, you know, in the book he has a string of letters after his name. I mean, he's not just a vampire hunter. He's right. this, you know, great. He's this really great scholar, and and in the book, in my book, it's kind of like uh, uh, I have this introduction from Jack Seward in the book, kind of trying to put to rights Van Helsing. It's kind of like he's been discredited, you know, over the years because of you know the Dracula comes out and he's kind of like mm-hmm. you know, all his all his scientists colleagues kind of like turn their backs on him, and uh, I just thought it'd be interesting to write from that point of view of this character who's kind of misunderstood, and right. and you know, in, in, in oh, modern yeah. day, like. People tend to uh, people tend to relate more to the vampires and the bad guys, and you know I kind of yeah. want to write one back, you know, a throwback to the old like yeah. Peter Cushing yeah. kind of Van Helsing, you know. Well, who's your favorite Van Helsing? I, I, mine is Anthony Hopkins, but yeah, definitely. I, I was about which to say Anthony. Yeah. Uh, when I wrote the book, I thought of I like the weird quirks of Anthony Hopkins in that in mm-hmm. Bram Stoker's Dracula in the Francis Ford Coppola movie, yeah, because he's he's like yeah. an oddball, you know. And in the book, he, yeah, is, he he laughs at inopportune moments, and you know people look at him sideways, yeah. and uh, he's kind of a crazed. He's a little bit crazed by the exposure to stuff, you know. I think, and yeah. you know, he has a wife in the books, uh, who's in an insane yeah. asylum, and you know they just oh, wow. mention that. I just you know Stoker just throws that in there, and you know so I was I was able yeah. to explore that a little bit, and uh, you know how he came to be that way. I'll be reading yeah. this. Post oh, cool. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And you're a little bit into uh, science fiction. I see you did something with Star Wars. Yeah, you know, as as much as as much science fiction as Star Wars is, it's kind of more fantasy, you know, just with, with yeah. you know, spaceships. But, yeah, I was a big Star Wars fan from way early on. It's like one of the first movies I remember seeing with my parents. And uh, mm-hmm. um, I got into Star Wars by they, – they had this really cool uh, – Pablo Hidalgo, one of the editors over there, had this really cool contest where they would just have a character. They'd have a still each month of a character who just kind of walks back in the background or something in Star Wars. You know, Star Wars, Mm -hmm. the frame is crowded with weird characters. And they ran a contest for fans that was open to anybody where it would just be like, uh, you know, make a backstory for this guy. And I won wow. like uh, three months. I won because I just was, you know, crazy for Star Wars at the time. <laughs> and uh, and that was that led to my first professional Star Wars sales and everything. And oh, so that, that was pretty now, cool. That, as a Trekkie, I noticed that your profile picture is from Star Trek. Well, yeah, it was just the what 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 was the anniversary? The forty fifth or something anniversary of Star Trek? It was right I, before Doctor Who. It was right after Doctor Who. So yeah. It was like yeah, the forty fifth anniversary. I'm a yeah. big Bones fan too. Yeah, my wife oh, is a them. huge Trekkie, and I love old Trek a lot, like uh, the original oh, yeah. crew. Old Trek and Enterprise, the Scott Bakula one, and the new the new movies, especially Bones. He's boy. Carl Urban is great. You know what I just I just Isn't read he? about Carl Urban that's really cool that I didn't realize. I didn't even realize about the original, but, but uh, Bones um, was very Leonard the the actor DeForest Kelly was very into. Yeah. 
he was very devoted to his mother, and his mother died, and he insisted on wearing a pinky ring. Like, the character of Bones always has a pinky ring on, apparently. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know it, yeah, and it was his mother's ring that he insisted on wearing. And uh, if you look cool. at the new Star Trek movies, Carl Urban also has a pinky ring, and it's specifically to, uh, like, honor DeForest Kelly. Yeah, so I'm kind of a Trek nerd, too, obviously. Yeah, <laughs> I know that, I'm a big know? Trek nerd, but you know more than I do, it turns out. <laughs> <laughs> well, my wife is oh, the worst. So I mean, she can, you can, she can explain the transporter to you, whether you want to hear it or not, you know. <laughs> <laughs> when I was a kid, I figured out what geometric transgression, or geometric... Uh, Oh, I forget what it's called even now, but I wanted to figure out what warp speed was. And I hated uh-huh. math. I was never any good at it. But I sat there with math books trying to figure it out. That was probably the best thing Star Trek did for me. Yeah. Well, if there's geometry in it, you're on, you're one up on me already. So. Well, no, I don't remember a bit of it. Like, uh, really I'm mathematically it. dyslexic. It's really bad. <laughs> Most writers are. You know That's that? true. I yeah, think uh, math... Math comes to musicians really easy. It seems like that that I've noticed. My yeah. son, my eldest son, is a is a pianist, and he's pretty good at math. But uh, he yeah. doesn't read anything, <laughs> so it's like yeah. it's just <laughs> one of those things. Yeah, it, it, in fact, music is one of the few ways I can figure out what math is. If I read music, yeah. I can. Yeah, they definitely really. Yeah, I think it's because it's visual instead of so analytical. Yeah. You can't figure out what in the world they're talking about. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, I can't look yeah. at a. It, a, a sheet of music might as well be the Necronomicon to me. I, I'll look at it real quick. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to figure it out. <laughs> so I, so I now, have a possible question for you. Yes. Oh, yes, it's one of your favorites too, Alistair. If yes, you had a theme song, <laughs> what would it be? <laughs> if, you, if I had a what? A theme song. What would it be? A theme song. Wow, jeez. Mm-hmm. Uh, you kind of blindsided <laughs> me. Let me think. Yeah. Um, That's why we like this question. That was I know one. <laughs> See, now when I was when I was a mopey teenager, I would have said uh, "Tears of a Clown" by Sam Cooke, but I'm I'm not that anymore, so I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm not sure. Uh, uh-huh. uh, probably something by Johnny Cash or Tom Waits. Oh, nice. uh, I really like uh, "Hold On." That's a great one by Tom Waits. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you ever heard that, I don't know. I think so. Yes. I'm gonna go with yeah, that. yeah. <laughs> Oh, They'll okay. probably come up with something better and, and and like call you guys back and be like, you know what? Yeah, like on your next guest, okay. I'll be calling in. You guys have been that's thinking. all right. That's all right. Cause yeah. we'll be in touch because I'll well, be like asking yeah. demon questions. Yeah. <laughs> well, next year when your Arthurian book comes out, we'll ask you again. Yes, yeah. thank you. That's that's going to be called uh, the Knight with Two Swords. It's about uh, it's the story of uh, Sir Balin retold. Uh, you know, with kind of a darker oh. edge and everything. If you're aware of that, oh yeah. It's basically the that, knight who lost. Not what like, you hear about. Yeah, mostly you uh-huh. hear about the Holy Grail and all that. This is the story of the knight who yeah. lost the Holy Grail that started the quest that everybody had to, you know, go oh. under to like. So it's kind of interesting. <laughs> it's another like flawed <laughs> character, <laughs> very flawed <laughs> character. So. And, uh, and that's coming from Ragnarok. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you said that's that's with that's with Ragnarok, right? That's for Ragnarok. Yeah, that yeah. they put out my with sword and pistol. That'll be coming out sometime next year. Um, oh, man. I did a couple you of have, superhero books have, for them too coming out. I think. Oh. You have multiple. You have multiple pub- publishers, right? Yeah, I've uh, I've worked with Ragnarok. Uh, you know, I did this one with Del Rey and Journalstone did uh, Van Helsing, and uh, I've got I'm working with April Moon Books on a book right now too, which is I'm really excited about. It's really kind of a crazy idea, but I jumped on it as soon as I had the opportunity. Um, uh-huh. The 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 copyright on James Bond kind of ran out in Canada and Japan and stuff like that. And April Moon Books oh. did uh, uh, oh, wow. that flesh for flesh like smoke that I was just in and Dark Rites of Cthulhu. And um, so uh-huh. they approached me about doing a James Bond uh, Cthulhu mashup, and I went yes, <laughs> I'm totally there oh. because it's, it's set in the yeah. '60s and everything. So it's it's like mm. in the era of the original. It's it's the books, not the movies, you know. So it's like very uh, yeah. in the in the timeline of the Fleming books, and uh, it's called oh, uh, Mindbreaker. It's called Mindbreaker, and that should be uh, they're doing a Kickstarter oh. for that. Uh, it's going to be a whole uh. line of Bond books, and that's coming out in December, I think, or, or even next month. I I think he's starting the Kickstarter on that. Neil Baker. Oh so, man. Yeah, that'll be fun. I don't know how into that people are going to be, but I I had a lot of fun writing it. It was really cool. So what are some of your thoughts? What are some of your thoughts on on the on the publishing industry? You have a couple different publishers. Uh, what are your thoughts on 
traditional publishing, small presses, independent publishing, any thoughts? Well, I wish uh, I wish that the bigger now that I've gone like from small publisher to big publisher and back and forth and everything, I kind of like uh, I would like to see the bigger publishers kind of jump on the print on demand that that uh, smaller publishers are yeah. doing. I don't see why they're not doing it. It's such a great mode. Um, uh, right. And then I have not tried uh, publishing anything myself yet. I'm actually thinking about putting out uh, Mercabra Writers going out of contract, and it'll be out of print. Uh, the third one will be out of print next year. The first one's already gone. The second one's out of print this month. And uh, so I'm thinking about bringing those back out myself. I'm going to try that, uh, like through Creative Space or something. I really don't have too much experience with it, but I know a lot of authors that have gotten really successful um, just doing stuff on their own like that. So it's something I think yeah, I'd like yeah. to try. Um, nice. Like that book, that, that movie that's coming out, uh, The Martian one, uh, with Matt Damon, and it started out as an e-book I just read today. So like a self-published e-book. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's something I'd like to yeah. try. It's 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 weird how in flux everything is. You know, when I was a kid, uh, or when I was just starting writing, you know, just getting something published at all was, uh, you know, trying to find an audience for my stuff was like, you know, that was the end all yeah. be all. And it's just like it seems like every time I achieve something, then something else, you know, the, the ceiling right. grows bigger or something. I'm like, you know, Alice, the ceiling just keeps getting bigger. So, but it's it's interesting. It's exciting. Yeah, yeah, no, it is. I think it's uh, smart to do a little bit of everything. That's that's the best advice that uh, that we've gotten from from yeah. um, a lot of our authors that we have on here. Is you know try a little bit of everything because it, yeah. it's it's so it's so ever changing and it's so uncertain right now. And of course, you know it'll always be changing and growing, but it might probably not always be quite as up in the air as it is right now. So, yeah, you know, doing a little bit of everything. Yeah, I want to try. I said I want to try my hand at everything. It's not as it's definitely not as exclusive as it used to be. Whether that's good or bad, you know, it could be argued. But yeah, yeah um, like pros and cons. You know, you have like, <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, Twilight was fanfic or something, and you know, look at it now. It's like, oh, yeah, it was. Like that. It made a ton of money yeah. and got movies. And again, yeah, not saying that happened. that's a great thing, but it happened. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I hate to be the guy to bring that up, but you know, cheers. No, that's all good. <laughs> yeah. Well, we are just about out of time. Before we let you go, we are. Um, can you tell mm-hmm. us where the readers can find out more about you? Yes. Uh, if you can remember how to spell my name, <laughs> E-R-D-E-L-A-C, I'm very easy to find on Facebook. And, you know, I talk to everybody on there or whatever. I, I used to have an author page, but it's kind of it, it's kind of Facebook messed that up. So you just look me up on there yeah. and you can contact me. I also have my uh, blog, Delirium Tremens, uh, which is, uh, like they said in the beginning of the show, www.emerdelac, emerdelac, uh, wordpress.com. Uh, and I'm on Twitter and all the usual suspects. You can throw a rock and find me somewhere on the line. <laughs> nice. And we, I am so glad that we finally got through this without having any problems. Yes, um, no glitches. We we would love to have you back when you have your next uh, workout. Um, looking forward to it. Great. Thank you so much. I would love to be back. I had, yeah. a, I had a great time. Yeah, yeah we did too. And we will be in touch. I have demon stuff to discuss. So <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Hit me up on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. So uh, for those of you just joining us, we've been talking to Edward Erdelak. In just a few minutes, mm-hmm. this uh, show will be a permanent podcast link, which is the same link that uh, you're listening to now. And we'll post that, of course, on our websites and on the authorsontheair.com uh, website. And uh, check out Ed Erdelak and his latest book is Andersonville, which we are both um, very fascinated by. Uh, until next week, we wish you haunted nights and sweet screams. Thank you for listening and thank you for being on the show, Ed. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Yes. Until next time. Thank you.
Haunted Nights, live with Tamara Thorne and Alistair Cross. (laughs) 